Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. The man known to history as Henry of Monmouth, who would later become King Henry V of England, was born on the 16th of September, 1386, at Monmouth Castle in southeastern Wales. His mother... Mary de Bowen was the daughter of the 7th Earl of Hereford, Humphrey de Bowen, and as well as Henry, parented five more children, including her third son, John of Lancaster, the eventual Duke of Bedford, who would come to play a prominent role in the latter stages of the Hundred Years' War. However, Mary would never see her children live to adulthood, as she died in July of 1394, giving birth to her daughter, Philippa of England. Henry's father, Henry of Bolingbroke, or Henry Bolingbroke, was the son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, who was himself the third surviving son of King Edward III, who had started the Hundred Years' War with France by claiming the French crown, and had since brought England's enemy to its knees with spectacular victories on land and at sea, such as the naval battle of Sloys in 1340, and the Battle of Cressy in 1346. Despite these spectacular victories, Edward never managed to secure ultimate victory over the French, even though he was aided in his campaigns by his son, Edward, Prince of Wales, who is today known as the Black Prince, who won another famous victory over the French in 1356 at the Battle of Poitiers, in which the King of France, John II, was taken prisoner. This period arguably marks the zenith of English power over France, which could only be challenged by the reigns of Edward's Plantagenet ancestor, Henry II, and Edward III's great-grandson, Henry V himself. However, on each occasion England came to hold sway over mainland France, the island nation would snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and lose its continental territories to a resurgent Valois monarchy. Despite him not being able to finally claim the French crown, Edward III could have been forgiven for thinking that the destiny of his kingdom would be in safe hands after his death as his son, the Black Prince, was one of the most respected and capable military commanders of his time. However, Prince Edward would never get the opportunity to become King of England, as he died of dysentery in 1376, a year before his father, Edward III, meaning that the throne then passed to the Black Prince's infant son, Richard II, instead. Over the coming years, Richard proved himself to be nowhere near as capable as his father and grandfather, as he is widely considered to have been a weak, tyrannical and cruel king, whose reign was dominated by military failures against both France and Scotland, as well as numerous crises, including the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 and the power struggle with a group of his nobles, known as the Lords Appellant, who were led by Richard's uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, who was the youngest son of King Edward III and even Henry Bolingbroke, who would play a minor role in the uprising. The reason for this division between the king and his nobles was in large part due to the influence of Richard II's favourite, Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland, who in their eyes had grown overly powerful due to the king's favour, and after negotiations failed, the kingdom fell into civil war, 
in which the King and De Vere were ultimately defeated at the Battle of Radcot Bridge in Oxfordshire on the 19th of December 1387, and afterwards the King's favourites were either killed or forced to flee to France, after which Richard was compelled at the so-called Merciless Parliament of June 1388 to accept his nobles' terms and purge his household of all persons they found undesirable. This meeting of England's Parliament certainly earned its name, as Richard's favourites, judges and household retainers were one after the other given a traitor's death, in which they were publicly hanged, gutted and decapitated, in what was one of the most humiliating examples of noble and parliamentary power over the monarchy in English history. However, Richard who was at this time still only 20, could not forgive or forget his nobles' cruelty to his favourites. By this time, Henry Bolingbroke's son, Henry of Monmouth, the future Henry V, was embarking on an education befitting a boy of his class, in which he undertook training in martial arts, horse riding and hunting, along with music lessons, literature and finally languages, including Latin, French and English. Despite enjoying the diet of a nobleman that included fine meats and fish, rather than the bland root vegetable based diet peasants and serfs had to endure, some accounts state that young Henry was unusually small and thin for a boy of his age, which was soon remedied as the years rolled by and as he grew, Henry would also visit the royal court with his father, as he was after all the eventual heir to the Duchy of Lancaster and was the king's nephew. In the 18 months since the Merciless Parliament, Richard II had ruled England in conjunction with his councillors. However, when he reached maturity at the age of 22 in 1389, he assumed control over the governance of the country and ruled benevolently for a time. However, the king, much like his great-grandfather, Edward II, had not forgiven his nobles for killing and hounding his closest companions out of the country, and in the late 1390s, Richard began to become increasingly authoritarian and paranoid in his rule particularly after the death of his beloved wife, Anne of Bohemia, in 1394, who he bitterly mourned for months afterwards. As well as this, Richard had been unable to bring about an advantageous peace with France, and thusly then sought to make peace terms with its king, Charles VI, which eventually led to a 28-year peace treaty being agreed between the two kingdoms, providing Richard agreed to marry Charles's six-year-old daughter Isabella, which was controversial as the French princess would not be able to produce an heir for nearly a decade, not to mention the fact that making peace with the French after decades of fighting was unpopular amongst the English population and nobility. It was perhaps this growing sense of hostility towards him that prompted Richard to then exact revenge on those he thought were against him or had wronged him in the past, and spurred on by his paranoia, Richard then ordered the arrest and execution of his own uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, as well as the other leaders of the Lords of Appellant, including the Earl of Arundel, who was beheaded, whilst the Earl of Warwick, who was sent into exile, had his lands and titles seized. The King was aided in this campaign of revenge by Henry V's grandfather, John, Duke of Lancaster, who along with those nobles who supported Richard, were richly rewarded after the purge, and even though Gaunt's son, Bolingbroke, had supported the appellants, he was nonetheless given the title of Duke of Hereford by Richard II, as the land seized from those who had risen against the king was redistributed amongst the kingdom's remaining nobles, including another of the minor appellants, Thomas de Mowbray, who was created Duke of Norfolk. All now seemed well from Richard's perspective, however, the kingdom was soon gripped by intrigue once again in 1398, when Bolingbroke informed the king 
that Mowbray had informed him that Richard was planning to seize the duchies of Lancaster, Hereford and Norfolk and imprison both John of Gaunt, Bolingbroke and Mowbray himself. Although historians now believe that Bolingbroke and Mowbray already hated one another by this time and that two separate factions, one supporting and one opposing the Lancastrians, had formed in the royal court by this time. Upon hearing these accusations, Richard believed Bolingbroke and had Mowbray arrested for inciting treason. However, Mowbray then denied that he had told Bolingbroke that the king was planning to seize his family's lands and to resolve the dispute that could not be proven or disproven either way. The two men agreed to fight one another in a trial by combat, the victor of which would be proven, with God's help, to be telling the truth. Therefore, on Monday the 16th of September 1398, in a field near Coventry, the two men, dressed in full plate armour, appeared before large crowds as well as the king himself, and after entering the field and swearing their oaths, the dukes chose their weapons and mounted their steeds, after which Bolingbroke charged headlong towards Mowbray, who did not move, but before the rivals could clash, at the last moment, King Richard cried out, Ho, 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 calling a halt to the proceedings. Then, after conferring with his advisers, the king declared that the trial was over and to both men's shock, banished them from the kingdom. Bolingbroke for 10 years, that was later reduced to six, and Mowbray for life. Perhaps because Richard saw an opportunity to banish his former enemies. However, in exile in Bolingbroke, the king was making a fatal mistake. With two more of his past enemies seemingly dealt with, Richard should have felt more secure in his rule. However, he would soon become more harsh, paranoid and tyrannical than ever before as he built up his number of retainers and whilst at court would sit silently watching those around him who had to bend the knee if they caught the king's gaze. In short, Richard's authoritarian rule combined with his total distrust of his nobles whose titles and lands he would seize on a whim destroyed the circle of trust that had, under Edward III, existed between the king and his leading magnates and as Richard became more paranoid and tyrannical his list of loyal friends decreased which only made him more paranoid in turn. Then, on the 3rd of February 1399, the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, died at Leicester Castle, meaning that his lands, which were the richest and most numerous in England other than the King's, were due to be inherited by his banished son, Henry Bolingbroke, who the paranoia filled Richard II now feared more than ever, as he had made the mistake of making an enemy of his most powerful noble. True to character, Richard then chose to seize the entire Duchy of Lancaster for himself and his noble retainers, whilst Bolingbroke, who had been staying at the court of Charles VI in Paris, looked on as the king took his lands and titles away from him, whilst the rest of England asked itself the question, whose lands and titles would be taken next? Richard had essentially proven himself to be nothing more than a crowned thief, as he had alienated England's most powerful nobles and earned the hatred of the kingdom's commoners which would, upon Henry Bolingbroke's inevitable return from France, lay the foundations of his downfall that the king then hastened even more by making the staggering mistake of leaving England altogether in 1399 to campaign in Ireland. The reason for this decision is unknown, however it is certain that Richard was paranoid about a coup as he took the crown jewels with him along with young Henry of Monmouth as his prisoner, in turn meaning that he must have suspected Bolingbroke would attempt a coup by landing in England, but must have still felt secure enough to leave for Ireland as he left the realm under the protection of his uncle, Edmund of Langley, the Duke of York. 
Upon hearing the news that the king had left the back door to England wide open, Bolingbroke, with the backing of his allies in France, as well as the disaffected nobles still in England, such as Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, and Ralph Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, crossed the English Channel and progressed along the kingdom's east coast before finally landing at the mouth of the River Humber on the 4th of July, 1399, with a small retinue of 100 men-at-arms. As he progressed inland, Henry soon attracted hundreds and then thousands of men to his banner, during which peasants gave his men food and shelter, whilst knights and nobles swelled his ranks with fighting men, meaning that before long, it was abundantly clear that Bolingbroke's rise to power was inevitable, and one chronicler even states that Henry's host eventually numbered in the region of 100,000 men, which, given the grand swell of support he now enjoyed, may not have been an exaggeration. Richard, whose absence had sealed his doom, could do nothing to stop Henry by this time, and soon even his uncle, Edmund of Langley, was forced to accept Bolingbroke's supremacy, and despite returning from Ireland via Wales, where he attempted to raise an army, it was abundantly clear that Richard's time was up, and he finally surrendered to Henry on the 19th of August at Flint Castle in northeast Wales, before being taken to London, where the king was imprisoned in the tower in early September. Bolingbroke had first claimed that he intended to help Richard rule his country better upon apprehending him, but now evidently sought to take the crown for himself instead, but faced the problem of legitimising his ascension. But as Bolingbroke had the support of the country's nobility, the church, as well as parliament itself, Richard's disposition was merely a formality. Therefore, citing the king's unworthiness to rule, parliament finally agreed to depose King Richard II on the 1st of October, 1399, and then on the 13th of October, Henry Bolingbroke was crowned King Henry IV of England at Westminster Abbey. Although the new king had little to no love or loyalty left for Richard, his son Henry seems to have cared a great deal for the deposed king, as he had been treated well whilst on campaign in Ireland, and had even been knighted during the expedition. Whilst one source also claims that after Henry's father had secured his power base in the Palace of Westminster, he sent for his son, who instead left to visit Richard in the tower, who compelled young Henry to go to his father instead. Initially, Henry Bolingbroke had publicly intended to keep Richard alive after taking the crown, but when a plot to assassinate Bolingbroke and release the deposed king was discovered, Henry realised that as long as his cousin remained alive, his throne would not be secure, and thusly the decision was taken to transfer Richard to Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire, where sometime during the winter of 1400, the deposed king was starved to death, aged just 33. Although Richard II's reign had been a catalogue of disasters, Bolingbroke's seizure of the English throne would come to have dire consequences in the years to come, as the killing of an anointed monarch by a man who was, after all, not the next in line to the throne, would set a dangerous precedent, as when Edward III's second son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence's last surviving heir, Edmund Mortimer, 5th Earl of March, died in 1425. His lands and titles were inherited by Richard Plantagenet, 3rd Duke of York, the grandson of Edward III's fourth surviving son, Edmund of Langley, who would ultimately depose Henry V's son, Henry VI, and ignite the Wars of the Roses. In a matter of months, Henry of Monmouth had gone from being the heir of a disinherited English duke to being the heir apparent to the Kingdom of England itself, and in the weeks following his father's coronation, Henry now aged 13, was created Prince of Wales, Duke of Lancaster, Duke of Cornwall, Earl of Chester, and Duke of Aquitaine. After his father's coronation, Henry, or Harry as he was known, travelled to Queen's College, Oxford, where he finished his education under the tutelage of his uncle, Henry Beaufort, who was the university's chancellor, 
And then, in 1400, Prince Henry travelled to his Duchy of Cornwall, where he acted as High Sheriff for four years, which was the King's judicial representative, his responsibilities being to keep the peace and dispense justice. Despite this, Henry's adolescent years would be shaped by conflict, as his father Henry IV's reign would prove to be relatively short and bloody, as the king, aided by his son, would be forced to fight for the very crown he had taken from Richard II. The first crisis that befell the new king was a full-scale uprising in Wales against England's overlordship under Owen Glendore, who in 1400 launched a revolt and even proclaimed himself Prince of Wales, prompting Henry IV to send Prince Henry to campaign in the Principality. However, he was soon recalled in 1403 to aid his father at the Battle of Shrewsbury on the 21st of July, where the king's army defeated a rebel force under Henry Percy, also known as Hotspur, who had risen up against Henry IV when he failed to grant the Percy family promised rewards after his ascension to the throne, which they had helped him to achieve. Prince Henry, now 16, was by this time proving himself to be an extremely capable soldier and commander, as he was in the thick of the fighting at Shrewsbury, and at one point was almost killed by an arrow hitting him in the face near his nose, and it was only with the expert help of the royal physicians that his life was saved. But despite this, young Henry would bear the scar of battle for the rest of his days, along with many other wounds he obtained during his numerous campaigns. After Shrewsbury, Henry returned to Wales in an attempt to bring Owen Glendore to heel, but the self-proclaimed Welsh prince proved himself to be a stubborn enemy, who soon united the majority of the Welsh populace behind him in what became a full-scale war rather than a rebellion. Indeed, one of the titles the Glendore Uprising is known as today is the Last War of Independence, which would continue for another decade. As time went by, Prince Henry was compelled to leave Wales for London, as his father the King had contracted a mysterious illness in the summer of 1405 that historians have since guessed could have been leprosy or even epilepsy or cardiac problems as chronicles state that Henry IV suffered from attacks which got more frequent and serious as the years went by, meaning that the Prince of Wales increasingly had a greater say in the governance of the kingdom, although Henry soon began to argue with his father over foreign and domestic affairs, resulting in him being dismissed from the King's Council in 1411. In contrast to William Shakespeare's portrayal of Henry V, the Prince does not seem to have enjoyed a riotous youth. But instead, by the time of his ascension to the throne, was a battle-hardened commander who no doubt enjoyed the respect and loyalty of his subordinates, which is evidenced in some accounts that state there was a body of opinion within the kingdom's nobility that the increasingly ill Henry IV should abdicate the throne and allow his son to take his place. In the end, neither England's magnates or Prince Henry himself would have to wait for long, as Henry IV soon succumbed to his illness in the Jerusalem chamber at Westminster Abbey on the 20th of March, 1413. From what historians think may have been a stroke, so ended the reign of one of the most controversial kings in English history, as with his death, the hitherto divided Kingdom of England was united under the youthful, strong and energetic Henry V. Little over a month after his father had drawn his last breath, Henry of Monmouth was crowned King Henry V of England on the 9th of April, 1413 at Westminster Abbey whilst a ferocious snow blizzard fell from the grey London skies, which onlookers and chroniclers could not decide was a good or bad omen. Henry was 27 at the time of his coronation and stood at a considerable 6 foot 3 inches in height and was clean shaven with dark cropped hair, whilst his face, although battle scarred, had a healthy complexion with a prominent and pointed nose in its centre 
whilst his eyes, depending on his emotional state, flashed from the mildness of a dove's to the brilliance of a lion's. Much like the greatest kings of the Plantagenet dynasty, such as Edward I and Edward III, Henry V, if he chose to look, had plenty of evidence of what was expected of a medieval king of England, as the less successful Plantagenets, such as King John, Edward II and Richard II, had all alienated their nobles and paid the price as a result, whilst the more effective of Henry's forebears understood that a king of England could only reign in collaboration with his nobles, as their support was crucial in virtually every area of governance, from war to taxation and even diplomacy. Also, given the fact that Henry had received a good education, fought at the head of his father's armies in several campaigns and for nearly a decade aided his father in running the country, it is perhaps fair to state that the young king was better prepared for rule than the majority of his Plantagenet predecessors or successors, ultimate proof of which was to come over the next decade in what many consider to be one of the most successful reigns in English history. It therefore must have come as a relief to the kingdom's magnates that Henry soon after becoming king adopted a policy of appeasement and pardon with respect to the kingdom's nobles who had rebelled against his father and as well as this, Owen Glendore died in unknown circumstances in Wales in 1415, meaning that Henry was soon able to pay off the remaining Welsh and marcher rebels, although it is perhaps fair to state that the fact that the new king had been born in Wales himself may also have been a factor in securing peace in the Principality. Then continuing with his strategy of reconciliation, Henry also had Richard II's body relocated from its original resting place in King's Langley in Hertfordshire to Westminster Abbey. However, the new king was soon met with a serious challenge from a religious group known as the Lollards, who were a Protestant-like Christian religious movement that were opposed to what they saw as the false religious dogma and idolatry of the Catholic Church and argued for an end to capital punishment, the celibacy of priests, exorcisms and the Catholic practice of confession as they stated that only God had the power to forgive sinners. This movement had inevitably been suppressed by both church and state before Henry's reign, but when several Lollards were imprisoned in the Tower of London, an organised insurrection broke out under John Oldcastle, a close former friend of Henry V, who then hatched a plan to kidnap the king himself and demand religious reform. However, the Oldcastle Rebellion, as it is now known, soon failed as Oldcastle himself was eventually captured, tried and executed as a heretic, after which the Lollards were driven underground by further reprisals. As his position in England was now secure, Henry was able to turn his attention to continental affairs and his intended resumption of hostilities with the French, who had supported Owen Glendore's Welsh Rebellion with money and troops. However, another reason for Henry wanting to resume hostilities was due to France being in a state of turmoil, as its king, Charles VI, had for a number of years been suffering from mental illness, as he believed he was made of glass, which led him to have iron rods sewn into his clothing, so that he would not shatter if he bumped into people or nearby objects. As the French king was incapacitated, there was infighting amongst his nobles over the control of the kingdom, particularly because King Charles's son, Louis, was too young to assume power. Therefore, Henry V sought to capitalise on this weakness at the heart of the French monarchy and resolved to once again lay claim to the French crown and demanded the reinstatement of the original Plantagenet holdings in the Duchy of Aquitaine, which had been greatly reduced in size during the reign of Richard II. In an effort to come to an agreement between England and France, a great council was called in the spring of 1414, at which Henry stated that he would give up his claim to the French throne if they paid him 1.6 million crowns in compensation, 
which was the outstanding ransom of the late French king John II, who had been captured by the Black Prince at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356. And on top of this, Henry also demanded that the French concede English ownership of Normandy, Touraine, Anjou, Brittany, and Flanders, as well as Aquitaine itself. This wish list was then added to when Henry also proposed to marry the daughter of Charles VI, Catherine of Valois, for which he also demanded a 2 million crown dowry that evidently was too much for the French to take, as they responded with a counter-offer consisting of Catherine, along with a 600,000 crown dowry, as well as an enlarged Aquitaine, but with no mention of the outstanding ransom of John II or the other territories Henry had requested. In short, Henry's demands were far too high for the French to agree to, as they would have to empty their treasury as well as surrender Princess Catherine, along with the majority of mainland France, just to end English claims on the French throne. And as a result, negotiations broke down by 1415, leading the English to claim that the French had mocked them and even insulted Henry personally, which Shakespeare would later portray as the French gifting Henry a chest full of tennis balls. Seeing that war was inevitable, Henry started preparations for a full-scale invasion of France and in December of 1414, secured funding from the English Parliament to aid his preparations and four months later, also secured the agreement of his nobles to go to war with the French. However, before Henry could leave for the continent, a threat to his person was uncovered in the so-called Southampton Plot of 1415, the goal of which was to place Henry's cousin Edmund Mortimer, 5th Earl of March, onto the English throne, and was led without Mortimer's knowledge by Richard of Conisborough, Earl of Cambridge, Henry Scrope, 3rd Baron Scrope of Massam, and Sir Thomas Grey, whose son was married to the Earl of Cambridge's daughter, Isabel. However, this plot was soon uncovered in Southampton, leading to all three men being beheaded on the 5th of August, 1415, enabling Henry to leave for France at the head of his army on the 11th of August, which then landed in Normandy on the 13th. After landing, the English king moved to attack Harfleur, three miles downstream from Monday Le Havre, that was garrisoned by only 400 men, and after setting up camp on the 18th of August, the English army, which consisted of 2,000 men at arms and 6,000 longbowmen, proceeded to pound the town's walls with 12 great guns, after which Henry ordered a full-scale assault, and realising their number was up, the French surrendered a month later, on the 22nd of September. Although his siege of Harfleur had been successful, the squalid conditions Henry's troops were forced to live under then resulted in an outbreak of dysentery, which historians estimate killed or incapacitated between a quarter to one third of Henry's entire force, and then perhaps realising that his army was greatly weakened, and in an effort to evade a large French army which was heading towards Normandy, Henry then chose to leave Harfleur on the 8th of October 1415, and head northeast towards the English territory of Calais, where he planned to overwinter in safety. The French had raised an army by this time, in the name of Charles VI's son, Louis the Dauphin, in the area of Rouen, although he was not ready to fight in time to relieve the city of Harfleur. However, when Henry moved to march towards Calais, the French then sought to block his advance by manning the crossing points of the River Somme, which stood between the English king and his objective. After moving south in an effort to find a ford, the English were finally able to cross the River Somme at Voyenne, after which they once again turned north and marched towards Calais, whilst in the meantime, the French who evidently still did not feel strong enough to challenge Henry, continued to shadow the English army. The French force that was under the command of Charles de Albray, the Constable of France, and a number of French Dukes, including the Duke of Orléans and the Duke of Bourbon, 
then sent out requests for reinforcements and also opened negotiations with the English in an effort to delay them as the French army was, after all, fresh, whereas the English had marched almost 250 miles in two weeks and were on the point of near starvation and still suffering from the effects of dysentery. Finally, on the 25th of October, 1415, Henry decided to stand and fight the French who were encamped across a narrow valley near the castle of Agincourt, which would become a name that echoes down the centuries as the battle that would follow would perhaps become the most famous of the Hundred Years' War and even the most famous battle in medieval history, that being the Battle of Agincourt. Despite its legendary status, the Battle of Agincourt itself is still shrouded by myth, speculation and legend as the exact site of the battle is still contested although most historians agree the approximate location of the confrontation to be in or around the modern-day village of Azincourt, and as well as this, the sizes of both armies is also contested, with estimates stating that the English army consisted of between six to 9,000 longbowmen and men-at-arms, whilst the French army is estimated to have consisted of 12 to 36,000 men-at-arms, archers, crossbowmen and knights. One of the crucial deciding factors in the Battle of Agincourt was the geography and topography of the battlefield itself, as the English took up a defensive position between two woods which contained the castle of Agincourt and the village of Tramcourt, which forced the French to advance on a narrow front, meaning that they were unable to outflank the English, making them extremely vulnerable to arrow fire. Henry organised the English into three divisions, or battles as they were known, with the right wing being commanded by Edward, Duke of York, the centre being led by Henry V himself and the English left by Baron Thomas Camoys, whilst Henry's longbowmen were commanded by Thomas Erpingham, who was one of the king's most experienced commanders that in accordance with Henry's orders stationed his longbowmen on the flanks of the English battle line. In preparation for the battle, the English king had ordered his men to remain silent the night before as he was suspicious that the French would launch night attacks. That was an order he enforced by threatening to cut off the ears of any man who so much as spoke aloud and he even told his troops that he thought it was better to die in an upcoming confrontation than to be ransomed as a prisoner. Chroniclers also state that the English king made an inspirational speech before the fighting commenced, which now has legendary status due to William Shakespeare's play, Henry V. However, in reality, Henry V's actual words before the Battle of Agincourt were almost certainly not as poetic or inspiring as in Shakespeare's play as some accounts state that he told his archers that the French would cut their bow fingers off so they could never draw a longbow again. The French army in contrast was not only larger than the English, but consisted of large numbers of noblemen who no doubt considered themselves to be greatly superior to the low-born English archers in front of them, and perhaps being ignorant of the devastating effect the longbow had had earlier in the Hundred Years' War, many of the young French knights and nobles positioned themselves in the French vanguard. The French army itself was deployed in three lines of battle, one in front of the other, which were flanked by mounted men-at-arms and knights and supported by thousands of archers and crossbowmen, although as previously mentioned, the true number of the French put into the field at Agincourt is unknown, but it is widely considered to have been two to three times as many as the English. After forming up opposite one another on the morning of the 25th of October 1415, what followed was a three-hour uneasy face-off as both sides were wary of making the first move. However, Henry was aware that more French troops were on the way and so reluctantly took the decision to seize the initiative and ordered his army to advance forward to within range of the French vanguard 
and ordered his longbowmen to drive prepared sharpened wooden stakes into the ground to protect them against cavalry. The French cavalry then seized their opportunity and charged towards the English longbowmen, doubtless expecting to steamroll at their adversaries. However, when they came within range, they were hit by a hail of missiles that more often than not felled or panicked the horses rather than the men riding them, and before long, hundreds of screaming animals lay dying in the churned up, blood-soaked, muddy ground in front of the English stakes whilst the remainder charged back through their own lines, crushing French men-at-arms as they went. These cavalry charges also turned the ground between the two armies into a quagmire. However, regardless, the main French battle line then started to advance through the mud towards the English. In their heavy plate armour, they weighed upwards of 50 pounds apiece, meaning that by the time the French got anywhere near the English positions, they were either exhausted or weighed down by mud, whilst being fired at by the English longbowmen, who historians estimate remained effective on thin-plated armour up to as far as 200 metres. Nonetheless, thousands of French men-at-arms still managed to reach the English lines, where they were met by relatively fresh English men-at-arms commanded by Henry and his nobles who were reinforced on their flanks by common longbowmen, who then downed their bows and joined the melee with daggers, hammers, swords and axes. In the ensuing chaos, the English longbowmen fought for their lives, as the majority of them were commoners who would be killed and not ransomed if captured after the battle, whilst men-at-arms were generally of noble birth who had a reasonable chance of survival if captured after a battle. It was perhaps this desperation to survive which saw the English longbowmen fighting hand-to-hand -hand, or even shooting their arrows at point-blank range, combined with the exhaustion and disorganisation of the enemy attacks that soon resulted in the French army beginning to crumble, and when the fighting died down, Henry realised he had taken more French prisoners than fighting men in his own army. It was then that Henry saw in the distance the remaining French rear guard, and fearing that if they attacked, his army would be overwhelmed. The English king chose to ignore the rules of chivalry and ordered his troops to execute their French prisoners, which they initially refused to do, as it was against chivalric practices and also ruled out any possibility of obtaining ransom money. However, when Henry threatened to hang any man who defied his orders, his troops reluctantly began to slaughter their French captives, after which Henry then ordered a charge against the remaining French rear guard that, lacking leadership and no doubt terrified of being slaughtered themselves, fled the field. The Battle of Agincourt proved to be a great victory for the English, who had taken on a force much larger than their own and had by a combination of the terrain, the weather, their enemy's arrogance and disorganisation, as well as the longbow and King Henry's tactics, killed as many as 6,000 French and in return only lost between 100 and 600 men themselves. The most notable casualty from an English perspective was the Duke of York, who had, according to some, saved Henry from being killed himself before he was dispatched by a blow to the head, whilst the French on the other hand lost three dukes, eight counts, a viscount, an archbishop and a large number of nobles and knights, including the army's commander and constable of France, Charles de Aubray himself. Although the Battle of Agincourt is amongst the most famous battles in medieval history, its strategic impact was minimal to start with, as it did not lead to any immediate English conquests, largely because King Henry, due to his troops' exhaustion and the onset of winter, left France via Calais on the 16th of November and returned to England, where he was received as a conquering hero in London on the 23rd. Although the French nobility had been decimated during the battle, the country did not collapse as a result of Henry's victory, as the English king needed time to build up his forces once again. However, 1416 was marked by an English victory at sea when Henry's brother, John, Duke of Bedford, defeated a Franco-Genoese fleet 
that was aiding a French siege of Harfleur that Henry had captured during his Agincourt campaign. After concluding his preparations during 1416, Henry renewed his war on France in 1417, when he returned to Normandy, captured the city of Caen, and then besieged the duchy's capital of Rouen. However, this siege would cast a further shadow over Henry's character, as when the starving women and children of Rouen attempted to leave the town and pass through the English lines, Henry refused, meaning that hundreds if not thousands of women and children died of starvation and exposure around the city's walls as a result. Finally, in January of 1419, the city of Rouen fell, largely because the French were racked with divisions at this time between the Burgundian and Armagnac parties, or factions within the French court, which had started when John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, had in 1407 ordered the death of his rival Louis, Duke of Orléans, resulting in a blood feud breaking out between the Duke of Burgundy and the assassinated Duke of Orléans' son, Charles, along with his father-in-law and protector, Bernard, Count of Armagnac. However, the young Charles Duke of Orléans had been captured by the English at the Battle of Agincourt, which was then compounded by the Count of Armagnac being murdered in 1418, meaning that the Burgundians took control of the majority of France, including King Charles VI himself, who in 1415 had lost his son and heir, Louis the Dauphin, leaving his last surviving son, Charles, as the new Dauphin. This infighting within the French court then ceased for a time in 1419, when the Duke of Burgundy and Charles the Dauphin negotiated a truce in order to fight the English. However, supporters of the Dauphin then murdered John, Duke of Burgundy, in September of 1419 on the streets of Paris, which reopened the feud between the rival parties and continued to weaken French resistance to the invaders. The month before, August of 1419, had seen the English advance from Normandy towards Paris, after which they encamped outside the French capital's walls, meaning that after the assassination of his father, Philip, the new Duke of Burgundy, who now sought revenge against the Dauphin, formed an alliance with the English, which would last for the next 16 years of the Hundred Years' War. As the English were outside the walls of Paris, it was evident to the French that defeat was imminent, Therefore, negotiations began between Charles VI and Henry V for a cessation of hostilities in what would be known as the Treaty of Troyes, in which the French agreed to disinherit Charles the Dauphin, meaning that Henry would become the next King of France after Charles VI's death. And to seal the treaty, a marriage was also agreed between Charles VI's daughter, Catherine of Valois, and Henry V. This treaty effectively signalled Henry's total victory over the French and would have ended the Hundred Years' War if all had gone according to plan in the years to come. However, in the meantime, Henry was recognised as regent of France, and marriage preparations then began that culminated in the English king marrying Catherine of Valois at Troyes Cathedral on the 2nd of June, 1420. However, Charles the Dauphin, along with many French nobles, did not accept Henry's ascension and had no intention of bending the knee to an English king. Therefore, in defiance of his father's treaty with the English, Charles continued to resist the invaders in order to claim what he saw as his birthright, meaning that the war was to continue as much of mainland France still resisted Henry's supremacy. The English king then returned to England in 1420, leaving the English armies in France under the command of his brother, Thomas of Lancaster, Duke of Clarence, who he ordered to conduct raids in Anjou and Maine during the spring of 1421. However, unbeknownst to Clarence, the Scots, who had been in an alliance with the French since 1295, had recently sent troops to France and along with the French formed a sizeable army, which then met the English at the Battle of Bourget on the 22nd of March 1421, at which Clarence's forces were soundly defeated 
leading to the commander of the Scots, John Stuart, Earl of Buchan, being made constable of France shortly afterwards. This reversal would come to have far-reaching consequences for the war as a whole, as Henry was at this time in London, overseeing the coronation of his wife, Catherine of Valois, on the 23rd of February, 1421, and had afterwards undertaken a tour of England, during which they heard the news of Clarence's defeat that prompted Henry to return to France on the 10th of June, 1421, with 5,000 men-at-arms, after which he resolved to besiege a number of towns that were loyal to the Dauphin. During this campaign, Henry met particularly stubborn resistance at the Dauphin-held town of Moor, which he besieged at the beginning of October 1421. However, the town held out against the English until May of the following year. However, it was during the winter of 1421 that the English king was greeted with good news from England, as his queen Catherine had given birth to his son and heir on the 6th of December 1421 at Windsor Castle, who would eventually become Henry VI of England. However, the English king would never meet his son and namesake, let alone see him grow into adulthood, as after the fall of Moor in August of 1422, the English king began to fall ill and died suddenly on the 31st of August 1422 at the Chateau de Vincennes, just east of Paris, aged just 35. It is possible and thought by many that Henry had contracted dysentery during the siege of Moor. However, it is likely that if the English king had died of dysentery, he would have been incapacitated shortly after the end of the siege in May, rather than in August, and some also theorise that Henry may have died of heatstroke, as he had been riding in full plate armour the day before his death in the searing heat of the French summer. It goes without saying that the death of Henry V was a colossal blow to the English hopes of victory in France. However, before his death, the English king named his brother, John, Duke of Bedford, as the regent of France in his infant son's name, and two months later, the French King Charles VI also died himself in October of 1422, meaning that if Henry had lived another few months, he would have been crowned King of France. Over the coming weeks, the King's body was brought back to England where he was finally buried in Westminster Abbey on the 7th of November 1422, whilst in France, his brother, the Duke of Bedford, proved to be effective in prosecuting the war. However, English fortunes would soon go into steep decline after the rise of the Maid of Orléans, or Joan of Arc, who breathed fresh inspiration into the hitherto demoralised French forces, and after a series of victories, the Dauphin Charles was finally crowned Charles VII, King of France in Reims Cathedral, on the 17th of June, 1429, whilst Joan of Arc herself was captured by England's Burgundian allies in 1430, and burned at the stake a year later. In response to the Dauphin's coronation, England then oversaw the coronation of young Henry VI in Notre Dame Cathedral in 1431 making him the only King of England to be crowned the King of France. However, young Henry's chances of victory in the Hundred Years' War were soon ended, when Philip Duke of Burgundy reconciled with Charles VII in the Treaty of Arras in 1435, after which the French steadily retook all the English territories one by one, culminating in England's final defeat at the Battle of Castellon on the 17th of July, 1453, leading to the fall of Bordeaux itself that October, which had been in English hands since 1189. It was this final defeat, along with the inexperience and ineptitude of Henry VI, that would eventually compel his cousin, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, to rise up against the Lancastrian king, initiating the conflicts known to history as the Wars of the Roses, which would see Henry VI deposed in favour of Richard, Duke of York's son, Edward, who became the first Yorkist king of England, Edward IV, whose sons, Edward and Richard, would, according to some, be murdered in the Tower of London under the order 
of Edward IV's brother Richard, who then took the English throne as the infamous Richard III. However, the Lancastrians would finally emerge victorious from the Wars of the Roses as Henry V's wife and Henry VI's mother, Catherine of Valois, after her husband's death, married a minor Welsh nobleman named Sir Owen Tudor, whose grandson, Henry Tudor, would defeat the last Plantagenet King of England, Richard III, at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 and become the first king of the Tudor dynasty, Henry VII. King Henry V of England is today considered to be one of his country's most effective and talented medieval kings, as during his nine-year reign, the youthful Henry brought England to the verge of victory against France in the Hundred Years' War, in which he secured one of the most famous victories in history at the Battle of Agincourt. However, despite the fact that we see Henry as the archetypal medieval warrior king, he also proved himself during his short reign to be a highly competent ruler and an expert diplomat. His detractors, particularly in France, criticised Henry's killing of prisoners at the Battle of Agincourt, as well as the neglect of civilians in his subsequent sieges. However, English historians would say these tactics are ruthless and or pragmatic, whereas French historians might call them barbarous or criminal. However, a possible fair conclusion regarding Henry's character is that it will forever be a matter of perspective and as such will always be hotly debated. What virtually all historians can agree on, however, is that Henry V was one of the most capable and formidable warrior kings of the Plantagenet dynasty, whose victories rank alongside those of Richard the Lionheart, Edward I, Edward III, and the Black Prince, and we can only imagine what might have been had he lived, which will be forever one of the greatest what-ifs of history. What do you think of Henry V? Was he a ruthless, war-loving king who executed prisoners and abandoned chivalry? Or was he one of England's greatest medieval kings, who thanks to his victories and a little help from William Shakespeare, will forever be immortalised as one of his country's greatest heroic monarchs? Let us know what you think in the comments section, and in the meantime, thank you very much for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.